We're going to begin reading this morning from the book of First Peter. So if you have a Bible with you, you can open it up again to the book of First Peter. We're starting in chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation and a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. My name's Spencer. Uh, I am the pastor of Missional Living for our community, and I'm excited because this morning I get to cap off our vision series that we've been going through the last few weeks. And so we've talked about three values for us as a church um, that we're going to, these are values that we've, things that we've always cared about, but we're going to emphasize in new and continuing ways in the days ahead. Uh, two weeks ago we talked about the value of encounter that we as followers of Jesus would have daily, tangible encounters with Jesus. Last week we talked about formation, this idea that all people everywhere are being formed by the world around them, and our hope, our desire as Christians, as disciples of Jesus, is that we are primarily being formed by him and by the scriptures. And this morning we're going to talk about a third value, and that is mission, the value of mission. And so I like to often give a little roadmap for where we're going to head um, in our time together. So I'm going to do that now. Uh, three different areas we're going to spend our time. First, why mission, why being on God's mission can feel so hard in our world today. Why it can feel like such a challenge. Secondly, why we would, why we would still do it. If it's so hard, why would we still engage in mission or go on God's mission? And thirdly, how then do we do it? How do we go about mission? I think we would all agree that our culture, it seems like almost day by day, is becoming more and more post-Christian. When I think about this, often a story or a, something that happened to me comes to mind. It was uh, a number of years ago when the Exodus movie came out. Does anybody remember the Exodus movie? Christian Bale as Moses, kind of an interesting casting decision as many people recognized. Um, and this was back in the days, you know, when we could sit close to each other in the theater. And uh, there were some guys sitting right behind me. And right when the movie ended and the lights were coming up, this, these like, they were sort of, you know, 18, 19, 20. And one of them says to his buddies, he's like, I am still so confused about this. Which one of those dudes was Jesus? Um, he just, and, you know, that's a Christian thing for us to laugh about. But it's a good indicator of how little a frame of reference our culture has for the Christian story, isn't it? I mean, in the biblical story, it's hard to get two characters, you know, chronologically further apart than Moses and Jesus. You can, in case anybody wants to come up and say, well, actually, Abraham, I know. I'm just saying, you know, I'm just saying, they're quite far apart in the biblical story. And it showed to me that 
you know, our culture has less and less of a frame of reference for what we believe as followers of Jesus. And so, if, as we have been saying over these last number of weeks, we desire to see our communities look more like heaven so that every person has a relationship with Jesus, then you and I have a responsibility. We must align ourselves with Jesus, who was consistently oriented outwards to the least of these and the lost. Doing good work, doing good deeds in our city is important. I, I believe in that stuff. But there's going to need to be something a little more radical than that. If people have no frame of reference for who Jesus is, what the biblical story is, where we believe that we sit in the story. And so we arrive at our sort of thesis for the morning, as Matt has had the last couple of weeks. So we have one this morning, and it's this. As missionaries sent by the Spirit, we partner with God in his mission of putting the world back into the shape he intended. I won't even repeat that because you'll hear it a lot more later on this morning, okay? With that, let's take a moment to pause. I know getting in here in the morning sometimes takes a lot of physical and sometimes emotional energy, particularly those of you who are parents. So pause, uh, reflect, think about how you're feeling, invite the Holy Spirit into that place, and then we'll continue on. Jesus, we want Guelph and every community beyond our city to look the way that heaven looks. And we believe that in heaven there's ongoing uh, beautiful encounters with you. There's people glorifying you. And we want that for our city. And so this morning, I pray that you would give us a vision for how you might use us to that end. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's begin with why mission, why being on mission in our world today can feel so hard. And to answer that question, I want to start by talking about Disney. Disney. Now, those of you who maybe are watching online or you're here and you are maybe exploring the Christian faith, you're maybe thinking, oh no, all of the rumors are true. Christians think that Disney is evil and, you know, rock music is from the devil. No, no, no. It's okay. I love a good Disney movie. But Disney is interesting because in unique ways it can sometimes capture uh, uh, the spirit of our age, some of the values of our culture. I think Disney movies often do this. One great example is the Disney movie Brave that came out, I don't know, four or five years ago. Uh, Brave is the story of Princess Merida in Scotland who's be being given away in marriage by her clan to sort of solidify relationships with another clan. And she refuses, Merida does, which causes a rift particularly between her and her mother, Eleanor. And so the movie, I won't spoil the whole thing, is kind of about you know, them re restoring that relationship. And how that comes about, I guess this is a small spoiler, Eleanor, Merida's mother, eventually comes to believe that Merida was right and that Merida deserves to decide 
when she marries and to whom. And the movie ends with this quote from Merida. She says this, There are those who say fate is something beyond our command, that destiny is not our own, but I know better. Our fate lives within us. You only have to be brave enough to see it. Our fate lives within us. You only have to be brave enough to see it. Now, I am not at all saying, man, isn't it too bad that our culture has moved away from arranged marriages? If only we could get back to that golden age. Um, but brave and Meredith's statement in particular there reveals something interesting that our culture does value. It's what Charles Taylor coined or, or called the age of authenticity. Okay, here's how he defined that. The age of authenticity is this understanding of life that each of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity and that it's important to find and live out one's own as against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us from outside, either by society or the previous generation or religious or political authority. You tracking with me so far? So in the age of authenticity, we each need to discover our own path in life, and we can't simply conform to some path uh, prescribed to us by an outside authority, whether that be society or a previous generation or a religious or political authority. And society, our culture, in an age of authenticity, has a unique role to play. And Carl Truman talks about this in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Matt quoted this book um, a couple of weeks ago. The role of society in an age of authenticity is to support me in my quest for authenticity, just as Eleanor, Merida's mother, eventually came to do for Merida. Here's how uh, Carl Truman talks about this. Satisfaction and meaning, or authenticity, are now found by an inward turn, and the culture is reconfigured to this end. Indeed, it, the culture, society, must now serve the purpose of meeting my psychological needs. I must not tailor my psychological needs to the nature of society, for that would create anxiety and make me inauthentic. So, in an age of authenticity, where I must find my own paths of fulfillment, to purpose, society's job is to support me as I go on that quest and to celebrate me when I find my way. This creates some significant challenges for us as followers of Jesus. Let me name three of them for us. The first is this. We believe, as followers of Jesus, that the prescription, the path to the good life, isn't found in pursuing my own every whim or desire, but in embodying God's vision for the world as it was revealed to us in the person of Jesus and in the scriptures. In other words, I am called as a follower of Jesus to conform to the standard of another, the standard that God gives me. So that's one challenge in the age of authenticity. Another is this pesky command that Jesus gave us to go and make disciples. In other words, to call people out of their old ways of living and into the new life that Christ offers. 
Again, in other words, not only am I, as a follower of Jesus, called to conform to the standard of another, the standard given to me by God, I'm also called to call others to conform to that standard, right? Can we see how this is like we're really cutting against the grain in our world today? And lastly, the third reason that we have a challenge in the age of authenticity as Christians is that for these reasons I already listed— and for a bunch of others that we don't have time to get into this morning, the historically orthodox Christian position is increasingly put into this category of worldviews or um, ideologies, some would say, that our society just can't quite support, right? In an age of authenticity, this, the idea or the mantra is like, you discover your path, you be you, find your truth, and yet there are this select number of worldviews that our society doesn't really want to get behind. A good example that illustrates this would be the incel movement, um, involuntarily celibate. This is this group of largely male uh, uh, men online who want to be in significant relationships and aren't and are angry at women and society as a result, and tragically that has sometimes resulted in violence, as we know. Our society has not totally gotten behind the incel movement and said, you incels, good for you. You know, you, yeah, follow your path. And similarly, it seems maybe a little drastic to say, but Christianity is kind of slowly being pushed into that category of a worldview that our society just has a hard time supporting. So you're saying, well, you've thoroughly saddened me, Spencer. Um, why have we spent this time talking about this so far? Because, friends, I think it's important to name the challenges. We all feel them. We all feel them. I, as a pastor who spends so much of my day thinking about how to speak the gospel, writing a message like this, I, this is a challenge. I struggle just as you do when I think about how to engage with my neighbors or someone at my, my kid's school. This is hard. And I think it's helpful for us to understand some of the reasons that it can feel like a challenge. And so then we turn to the question, why do we do the work of mission? If it's so difficult, why do we do it? And the answer, as probably any kid who's in City Kids right now could give us, is Jesus. The answer is always Jesus, right? And it's the answer here too, friends. Through the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we see that we worship a God who is on a mission to redeem and restore all of creation and to call all people to himself. And if you and I are to become like Jesus and do like he did, then our mission will be God's mission. Our mission will be God's mission. Let's, let's break this down and look at the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus for just a minute. Jesus' birth represented God on mission to us. John 1.14 says this, The Word became flesh, the eternal Word, the living God became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus' birth represented God coming on mission to us. Jesus' ministry as I said earlier, was consistently oriented outwards to the least of these and the lost. There are countless examples in the Gospels that we could give for this, but two. Mark 2, 17. 
When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus is oriented outwards towards the lost. Luke 15, 7. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And finally, through Jesus' victory over sin and death in his resurrection, Jesus tells us that he's granted all authority over heaven and earth. And his first command, after explaining this authority to his disciples, as Matt read for us last week, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, make disciples of all nations. All authority has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And so, friends, to really boil it down to its most basic, you and I are on mission because Jesus is on mission and he is our king. We are on mission because Jesus is on mission and he's our king. And so we arrive back at that thesis statement for our morning. As missionaries sent by the Spirit, we partner with God in his mission of putting the world back into the shape he intended. And so how do we go about this work? That's why we do it, but how do we go about it? Because as we identified early on, it's still hard, right? We, we, I hope you can see with me that, that we have this call, this commissioning from Jesus as our king to be on mission, but it's still challenging. So how do we go about it? And to answer that question, I want us to think about the passage that Sonia read for us from 1 Peter. I'm going to read it again. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you'd not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Many, uh, many books, libraries worth of books, have been written on different methods for evangelism. If you are new to the Christian faith, evangelism is this term for how to speak the truth of the gospel coherently and compellingly. And books and books and books have been written on methods for evangelism. Similarly on apologetics. Apologetics is how to prove the validity of the Christian worldview. Books and books and books have been written on Christian apologetics. And these things are so important. Our words matter. How we articulate the Christian faith matters. How we tell our own story matters. But as I was preparing this week, I felt this conviction that at times I wonder if we spend too much time talking about something that the scripture says will be a natural consequence of a life devotedly following Jesus without considering if our own lives are enough like Jesus to generate those kinds of moments. In other words, if our lives have nothing notable to them, if we are not being tangibly formed in the likeness of Jesus, having powerful encounters with him, 
if our lives have nothing, nothing notable to them, then our attempts at evangelism will always feel more like telemarketing than an answer to life's deepest questions. Because nobody around us will be asking those questions in the first place. It'll always feel like we're calling at dinner time. Have you heard about Jesus? The telemarketing example, I realize, is sort of becoming a lost thing. For those of you under 25, um, who, who maybe never had a home phone, um, you know, you used to have the home phone, the telemarketers knew, you call between 5 and 7, because everybody's home eating dinner. Um, sorry for the lost example, but... If our lives have nothing notable to them, then our, any attempt at evangelism will always feel as though we are telemarketers, instead of answering life's deepest questions. Now, some of you, maybe, are sitting thinking, thank goodness. Thank goodness, because I thought you were going to tell me the way that I needed to share my faith and then tell me to go and do it. Uh, and now you're just saying, I can just live a good life. And maybe you're even thinking, if you know the scriptures, you're thinking, wasn't it actually Peter who in that same letter said, just be prepared to make a defense for anyone who asks you? And you'd be right, theoretical person in the pew. Peter did write that in his letter later on. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. And yet, we need to understand the context of this letter to understand that verse properly. Matt talked a little bit about this last week, I think. This group that Peter was writing to were kind of scattered through the Roman Empire. And at that time, they were experiencing sporadic, though intense, persecution. Christianity was seen as exclusive and dangerous to the social order. In some places, it was even seen as economically disruptive or destructive. Think about a place like Ephesus, where so much of the culture and the local economy was built around the worship of this one idol. And when the Christians came, it disrupted all of that. And so this group, Peter, when he wrote to them, took for granted the fact that they were a distinct group, that they were a conspicuous community. There was no doubt about that. Here's how Peter opens his letter. 1 Peter 1, verses 1 to 9. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And then he says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then these last verses that many of us will know. Though you have not seen him, you love him. 
Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter knew full well that this was a distinct, marked-out community in the places where they lived and dwelled. And part of that distinction was that they were having life-changing encounters with Jesus, as we talked about two weeks ago, this desire that we would have tangible daily encounters with Jesus. Though you have not seen him, you love him. This group of people, Peter knew, were pursuing the ways of Jesus, even though it set them apart from their communities and was earning them all kinds of various trials, he says. They were filled with joy inexpressible and a joy that was filled with glory. And so, in one way, friends, we might say that mission is pursuing tangible encounters with Jesus and formation into his likeness out in the public square, out in the places where we spend our days, and inviting others into those encounters and that formation. So as Matt has done over the last couple of weeks, some, some specifics or some sort of subpoints of this whole value of mission for us as Church of the City that I think we see in the passage we just read. One is the everyday. We want to see mission happen in the everyday. The places where we live, work, learn, and play. In other words, we refuse to be followers of Jesus who compartmentalize, that say that this part of my life, this area over here, is an area where I want to be formed by Jesus. But, but over here in the classroom, like, faith doesn't enter into that. Or in my work, that's, that's a separate thing. No, we desire encounters with Jesus in all those places and to be formed into his likeness, to be a disciple in all the spaces that we exist. Mission means caring about justice a desire to restore broken relationships and systems in the world to function the way that God intended. If we are followers of Jesus pursuing formation in his likeness out in the world, then part of that will be a pursuit of justice. It'll be a kingdom mindset, having this, recognizing where we are in the story and how that affects the way that we interact today. And lastly, on a little bit more of a, a macro level, care for mission for us as a church will lead to more church planting because we have this desire that more communities would look more like heaven through everyone having encounters with Jesus. And so, friends, if we live lives in which we are pursuing encounters with Jesus in every corner of our lives, in which we are seeking to be formed in every area that we exist, then the world will notice. You know, it won't be a matter of maybe someone one day will ask me a question about my faith. The world will take note, and some won't like it, if we're honest. Up on the screen, I want to put that list of values that, or characteristics that marked the early church that Matt mentioned uh, last week, I think. I'll read them quickly. The early church was multiracial and experienced a unity across ethnic boundaries. The early church was a community of forgiveness and reconciliation. The early church was famous for its hospitality to the poor and the suffering. It was a community committed to the sanctity of life. And it was a sexual counterculture. 
believing that marriage was the proper context for sex and that marriage was between a man and a woman for life. Now listen, these values have the potential to make everybody mad at us as followers of Jesus. This doesn't fit us into any neat box. And some, you know, friends, frankly, and I'm guilty of this, I, I want to be, um, sort of, I find myself believing this lie that the best way to follow Jesus is to be the best neighbor that I can be, the best coworker that I can be, the best friend, and, and, and that maybe someone will just one day say, you're the best neighbor I have ever had. What is the deal with you? Well, let me tell you about Jesus, neighbor. And certainly, friends, I think that we desire to be those kinds of people. And yet, if we are faithfully following the ways of Jesus, Jesus himself tells us that there will be people bothered by us at times. And if there's not, then we should pause and reflect. Luke 6, 26, Jesus says, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. That gives me reason for pause in my life. And so, as I said, Peter took it for granted that the churches that he wrote to in this letter would be conspicuous communities, grouped, marked out, and distinct, countercultural in their pursuit of, of encounters with him, formation into his likeness. And some wouldn't like it, but some would be saved. Some would ask questions and press in and discover their own encounters with Jesus as a result. Tom Schreiner says it this way in his commentary for First and Second Peter. He says, Peter was confident that some unbelievers will be saved when they notice the godliness of believers. The unbelievers may revile Christians, but as they notice the goodness in their lives, some, not all, but some, will repent and be saved. And as a result of their salvation, God will be glorified. So friends, as missionaries sent by the Spirit, we partner with God in his mission of putting the world back into the shape he intended. These are our three values that we're going to talk about, keep beating this drum in the days ahead, friends. Encounter, formation, and mission. If you want to see all of these laid out with sort of each of their sub-points that we've talked about over the last few weeks, you can go to our website, guelph.churchofthecity.ca slash about, and see all of it laid out there, all the scripture references that we've been using. But with this, I want to now turn to communion. You potentially got the great little COVID communion uh, situation. The, the cup, and if you're new to this, the bread is kind of secretly hidden on the top. Um, Let me read for us. Go ahead and, yeah, get out the, the bread. We'll, we'll all enjoy that great little foil noise together. Let me read for us from the Gospel of Mark. As they were eating, he took bread, he being Jesus, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. Now hang on one second while I get this. I might have to actually ask my dear wife to help me. Oh, no, no, I got it. Friends, in the uh, practice of communion, we see each of these values that we've been talking about. We see Jesus instituting this practice for his disciples that they would continue on, and we now continue today. 
where we remember that Jesus came in bodily form, that God came on to us. And now as we eat the bread, we remember that God, as Matt said, that God is with us, that Jesus dwells in us. And so as we pray for daily tangible encounters, we don't simply look up and it's like praying for rain and we look for clouds and we hope and we wait. Jesus dwells in us. Communion brings us back to that reality. So as Jesus said, take and eat, this is my body. Continues on in Mark, and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and he said to them, which is poured out for many, truly I say to you, I will not drink it again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This blood, friends, covers us and reminds us that we are continually being formed in the likeness of Jesus, that his blood changes everything and marks us out as a distinct people. And would we remember that today? I'm going to invite up the music team. This mission goes on, friends, thousands of years, and we're invited into it here in our city today to shape Guelph and the communities beyond to look more like heaven so that people would have encounters that would lead to relationships with Jesus. It's difficult work, but we're not alone. Jesus said, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Jesus, all I know is for us to be faithful to this work of mission, we need you. We need your power and we need your presence. So would you show up in our lives, Jesus? Would we have tangible encounters with you? Would we be formed into your likeness? And we know in the world in which we live, if those things are happening, people will take note and questions will arise and we will speak to the hope that is in us. We love you, Jesus. Pray this all in your name, amen.